Hello everyone and welcome to the first full-length episode of my podcast, Under the Lemon Tree. Um, This episode will be all about episode 7, Driftmark, and wow, I have a lot of thoughts. I don't know where to begin, Um, but I'll just start with my initial reaction. This is probably my favorite episode so far, and I know I'm not the first one to say that, and I feel like I've said that about pretty much every new episode of House of the Dragon when it's come out, because they just feel like they keep getting better, and the show just continues to surprise me and impress me, and I anticipate, I'll keep saying this was the best episode yet as the season goes on. Um, What I really loved about this episode is that it felt like the culmination and the release of so much of the tension that's been building up throughout the entire season. Especially episode six felt very tense with the war to come and the tensions between the houses. We got to see a lot of infighting. The the war in a sense began in that yard. It felt like, you know, we had the children donned in black and green of their respective sides of their family and of this war already you know, having it out with each other, and it just felt so tense with all the just intense emotions of this upcoming civil war, and this felt like the episode where all that tension was finally released, and it was just so, so satisfying to watch, and we got to see so many of the scenes that have been teased from the very beginning of the show in all of those trailers, of the show, you know, we got to see the moment that Allison grabbed the dagger and tried to maim Rhaenyra. We got to see the moment Corlys Valorian said, um, history doesn't remember uh, blood, it remembers names. Just so many moments that were in the trailers and that we've been looking forward to and that I've been looking forward to throughout the season were in this episode. So I I really appreciated how this was just such an explosion of tension and of energy. And it really feels like the war, in a sense, began in this episode. The first blood to be spilled in the Dance of the Dragons was spilled in this episode with Aemon losing an eye and Rhaenyra getting cut. It's like someone from each side of the war has already had some of their blood spilled and the, the tensions are higher than ever. And... It's very exciting to see. Um, So I I figured the best way to go through this is just go through it chronologically. I have some some notes here. I have some things I want to talk about in the episode. Some of my thoughts, some of my questions, my overarching analyses. So um, I think the first thing is I'm honestly very surprised that Otto was able to be reinstated his hand. I understand that Laris killing, you know, his father... And, uh, and his brother allowed Otto to come back, and that's why he did it. But after Viserys fired him, it seems like the whole reason he fired him was because he felt like Otto couldn't give him uh, unbiased advice because he was so intent on getting his grandson on the throne, which is true and is an aspect of Otto's manipulation that we've seen from the beginning. I mean, it's the reason that he coerced Alicent to... Um, to seduce the king in the first place and to so that she could bear his sons and that they could be 
the rulers instead of Rhaenyra. It's like he was designing this plot from the beginning just to undermine Rhaenyra's claim. So from the very beginning, we've seen that Otto has this, this ulterior motive and this desire to manipulate the king, and manipulate the system in any way to get his grandson on the throne. And that was the whole reason that Viserys released him and fired him. So it's not like that's changed. You know, who's to say that Otto wouldn't still want to be trying to get his grandson on the throne, of course. Like, that still seems to be his goal. I don't see why it wouldn't be. So it, it was very surprising for me to see that Viserys actually seemed to agree to have Otto reinstated. And of course, I'm sure that's probably because of Alicent. She probably manipulated Viserys into eventually agreeing to have Otto back as hand. It it would be interesting to see or to try and think of what Allison could have said because that, that honestly was very surprising to me. I did not expect Otto to actually be brought back again as the hand, but um, here he is and and we'll we'll see what he does back in this position if he continues to manipulate and scheme and, you know, what he does next. So I, I'm curious to see that. Um, I really like seeing um, Helena being able to see the future, being sort of um, a prophet or a person, you know, able of prophesizing in that way. You know, we saw it very explicitly in the last episode when she foretold that Aemond would lose an eye in order to get a dragon. And it's interesting just how underestimated she is. You know, people don't seem to listen to her, her babblings. Her mother was very uninterested and seemed displeased with how interested um, Helena was, you know, in the bugs. And she's mumbling these prophecies and Allison really is paying no mind to her. And then here at the funeral, uh, Aegon calls her an idiot and thinks that she's just spewing nonsense. But she seems to be telling the future and when she talks about spools of green and spools of black I love that she was just foretelling this battle between the blacks and the greens and uh, I think that's really fascinating it reminds me of other characters you know we've seen who can see the future you know it reminds me of Melisandre reading the flames in Game of Thrones or the dragon dreams that King Viserys would have. So I wonder if Helena is uh, a dragon dreamer or has dragon dreams just like her father. I was also surprised to see that Helena is betrothed to Aegon because as we saw in episode four, Alicent seemed very resistant to and you know disgusted with the Targaryen custom of incestuous marriages. It's something that she, it was part of her you know, critique of, of Rhaenyra saying, you know, I can't believe you got with your uncle Damon, you know, you Targaryens, do you have queer customs, is, is what she said. But, uh, so I'm surprised that she agreed to have her own children be betrothed to, to be wed. It seems like something that she would be against. But I do understand that as a wife of a Targaryen and just as a person who seems very intent on upholding tradition, how she would be swayed, perhaps, by Viserys into believing that betrothing their children is the best course of action. So that was, it was a bit surprising to see that they're betrothed, but I can see how that would have come about. 
Part of me can't help but feel some sympathy for Aegon. You know, he is just a, a young kid, like a teen kid, and he really just wants to drink and flirt with girls who clearly aren't interested. Like, he doesn't seem to have any ambition or any interest in the throne, yet everyone is, or his mother especially, is pushing him towards that future just because they believe he should, simply because he's a man and that he should take the throne over Rhaenyra. And it, it's something so heartbreaking because, I mean, even in the last episode, you know, here Allison barges in on Aegon and says, you know, Rhaenyra is going to try to kill you if you take the throne. And then Aegon says, well, then I won't take the throne. And Allison says, you need to want to take it, though. And it's just so interesting. And it's just one example of how these children have been shelved with the the desires of their parents and the boiling war and the animosities between their parents have been pushed onto them. And I mean, I guess that idea is really what leads tensions to boil in the climax of the episode, which we'll get to that. Um, you know, Aegon is not by any means like a, a a good kid or like the most pleasant person, you know, but it's just sad to see that he really just wants to, you know, have fun and be himself and be a kid. And he's being pressured, especially by his mother, to have this ambition for the throne and to usurp Rhaenyra and go into this war when he doesn't really seem to have much of an interest in that and isn't really thinking about it. There's nothing that's shown that he has the qualities or the traits that would make him a good ruler or has any kind of interest in it. Whereas in contrast, Rhaenyra has shown those traits from a very young age. She originally didn't have many ambitions for the throne, but she was always very precocious and very inquisitive. And once she was named heir, she became very interested in the council meetings and she would try to offer her advice of what to do in the stepstones and she just wasn't listened to and wasn't taken seriously, perhaps because she was young, but also because she was a woman and people didn't take it seriously that she was named heir and saw it as really a temporary thing until the king had a son. And and it's sad because I feel like Rhaenyra was just very underestimated as a child. And while she showed leadership qualities and the potential to become a good ruler, which is something that Viserys even admitted once he named her as heir at the end of the first episode. He says that he should have done this all along and he shouldn't have spent her life wishing for a son, kind of neglecting her and ignoring her in that way, and that he was wrong for doing that and that she should have always been his heir. So I think Rhaenyra has always shown these traits that could potentially make her a good queen and a competent ruler, and she has the interest in it as well. Whereas Aegon, who's being upheld as her as her competitor for the throne and in the minds of a lot of people in the realm should be the ruler over her simply because of his gender. Yet he's not someone who has any interest in it or has displayed any qualities that show that he would even be good for the job. And to me, that's a really fascinating detail because it shows just the influence of the deep seated misogyny in this, in this uh, society, even, someone who has been named the rightful legal heir is 
and someone who has the qualities to potentially make them a good ruler is being overlooked and not taken seriously simply on the basis of her gender, which is very, very significant. And I, I think that says a lot about Westeros. And I find that just a really fascinating detail how they've chosen the creators to, um, or the writers, how they've chosen to contrast the characters of Rhaenyra and Aegon, even when they were both young, to show, I think, their different capacities for being able to rule and the different ways that the realm is reacting to them and what that says about gender politics in this world and how perceptions of gender are um, so significantly influencing what people think about these two these two people, these siblings being pitted as rivals for the throne. Uh, moving on in the funeral, I love this little moment where Jace and Eamon share a look over this little fire at the funeral. It's just, there's, there's, there's no love or tenderness in it. They just kind of give each other a, a side eye and move on. And I love that because it seems like a piece of foreshadowing because these are the two that are going to have have it out later when Eamon loses his eye. And the fact that they had this look while Eamon is wearing green and Jace is wearing black, it was just oh, another beautiful piece of foreshadowing showing this, this war that is to come. And I appreciate the similarities that are being drawn, you know, the, the parallels and the circumstances surrounding when Rainier and Damon first reunited after being apart in episode four and when they're reuniting again now in this episode. Um, because in episode four, you know, Damon had been off um, fighting in the Stepstones and had been gone for four years. And, you know, he returns to court. Rainier is kind of following him through, through the throne room, eyeing him and, you know, happy to see him clearly. And that image and those circumstances are mirrored in this episode as well when Rainier and Damon haven't seen each other in 10 years and he returns and here Rainier is walking around, you know, all these people kind of eyeing him across the room. I, I appreciated that. It gave the sense, you know, that these are, these are the same people. Rainier and Damon still have that, that chemistry and that attraction. And just, I love those parallels being painted there. I thought it was really interesting detail too, that when Rainier and Damon made eye contact, sort of a, a somber version of her theme began playing. The theme we hear, you know, when she first, uh, we see her first ride Cyrax, you know, to go to Dragonstone in episode, episode two, I believe that is. Um, just we hear, we hear that theme, just a, a somber version of it when her and Damon make eye contact and that theme kind of intensifies, gets louder when Viserys looks at Damon. And it's really interesting. It seems like they're trying to highlight, again, that dynamic between Rhaenyra and Damon and how perhaps time hasn't deadened that and hasn't made their feelings for each other fade, if anything, because of the grief they're both experiencing now, it seems to, to draw them together. Which is an idea that was mentioned in the Inside the Episode segment, the idea that Damon and Rhaenyra's chemistry is as strong as ever. And I definitely thought it was funny when Viserys called Alice and Emma. I'm glad I had the subtitles on because I didn't exactly 
register that until I saw the name Emma on the subtitles and I was like oh my gosh like did he just call Allison Emma and that look on her face she was just you know she was just like really like, are you kidding me like that was that was pretty funny um so that felt like a bit of a, a moment of levity and I thought I thought that was pretty funny um so moving on to when Rainies and Corlys are speaking after the funeral in in high tide um I thought it was interesting seeing this conversation they were having because it seemed to really reveal their what their motives are seems like Rainey's more than anything just wants her kids to be happy and safe and this was a concern we saw in her back when uh, Rainier and Lenore were you know betrothed and we had that whole conversation back in episode five you know she was speaking to Corlys about how afraid she was for Lenore because she was saying listen like we're putting our son in danger by having him go and marry Rhaenyra you know, she she's aware of her son's sexuality, and she was very afraid for him. Whereas Corlys didn't seem to share that fear or understand that. And in in this conversation here in this episode, you Noreenis know, accuses Corlys of just wanting power and just being so eager to have the power of the throne on on his side. And kind of that seems to be a lot of the reason why he wanted Lainor to to marry Rhaenyra in the first place. You know, to get some Valorian blood on the throne and you know this really is a breaking point for Rainier and Rainier is very I mean I'm sorry for Rainies um Rainies accuses Corlys of wanting power so much even to the cost of his own children and which is such an ominous thing to hear her say because she's sort of foretelling what's to come you know his Corlys's desire to have his blood on the throne which led you know Lainor to being betrothed to Rhaenyra um it led him to feeling trapped you know as a gay man he couldn't pursue the relationships openly that he wanted to you know this is a society that is not tolerant of his sexuality he can't express it openly um he you know as the eldest son and his family is expected to inherit high tide so he's expected to marry and have children um he's expected to have this life that he's not interested in having yet you know Corlys didn't seem to have a problem with that because again having him marry Rhaenyra and have children could get Valerian blood on the throne so it's very ominous when Rainey says this because she's kind of proven right by the end she says Corlys wants power even if it costs her children and in their mind at least this desire I mean it costs Lanor his life of course we know that Lanor doesn't actually die but uh Lanor's father his deep desire to have his son you know pursue power on the throne for his sake um leads him to feeling so trapped that he you know, agrees to this plan he's concocted with Rainier and Damon to fake his own death to run away you know it's such it's so devastating to see how in this society you know that that is how far and how extreme someone would have to go to just to feel at peace and to feel free this is what Lenor felt like he had to do in order to truly live as himself and be himself and be happy which is so heartbreaking to think, you know, that he lives in a society that 
that does that and that makes him feel trapped in that way um so i i really appreciated this conversation between rainies and corlys it revealed a lot about their characters and their desires and how that leads to conflict and tension between them and i also found rainies's words to be very ominous when we consider uh Lainor's fate at the end of this at the end of this episode and how far he was willing to go you know to fake his own death just to be free of the situation that his father Corley's put him in at you know the cost of Lainor's happiness just to make Corley's happy um how far Lainor had to go to be free from that so Rainey's words very much came true I feel like so moving on to Rhaenyra and Damon on the beach, I of course really appreciated this scene as a Daemira shipper. I had been eagerly awaiting their reunion. Um, every time they're apart, I just want them to reunite and see each other again. So of course, I, I very much look forward to this. And it did feel like their chemistry was just reigniting and almost as if it had never gone away. You know, I love how we see Rhaenyra really bear her soul in this moment with Damon and she expresses just how lonely she feels and just like Emma Darcy says in the inside the episode segment um she says that Rhaenyra feels very abandoned you know her mother died tragically she feels like her father kind of betrayed her and abandoned her by marrying Alicent um, she felt abandoned by Damon. She just feels, she felt abandoned by Alicent. So she feels very alone and very abandoned. And I love that she just, she just flat out says that and bears her soul to Damon and says, you know, I can't believe you, you left me and look at what my life has become without you. And it's, it's sweet. Almost what Damon says, you know, he says, I spared you, you were a child and that just brings confirmation to what I, and I'm sure plenty of other Damira shippers suspected after episode four and after that brothel scene, was that the reason Damon couldn't go through with what he was doing with Rhaenyra was because of his care for her. I, I believe that, and I think him saying this in this episode proved that, because he realized that what he was doing was taking advantage of her, someone who was a child and sexually repressed, and vulnerable in that way and then he got her you know in a, in a vulnerable situation and seduced her and he seemed or at least my interpretation of the scene at the time was that he he recognized how wrong he was for doing that and how manipulative that was and how much how he cared for Rainier so much that he couldn't bring himself to do that and in a way, I almost find that kind of sweet because I think it shows deep down just how much Damon does care for her. And I think him saying just those few short lines in this episode confirmed that. Him saying, I spared you, you were a child. He he stepped away and understood that, you know, Rainier deserved better than, than what he was doing to her and didn't deserve to be um, manipulated in the way that he was doing to her in that moment. Um, so I, I really appreciated seeing that confirmation of his, his character and his intentions in that line. Um, I also love seeing just how much Damon sympathizes with Rainier's pain. Um, 
you know, she he admits that Rhaenyra can't mourn for Harwin the same that the same way that he can mourn for Lena. And I I found that really really touching. You know, at first there seems to be that that bit of fire, that bit of anger where Rainier is like, you know, my life has become droll tragedy without you. And Damon's like, well, what do you think of my life? You know, we're both going through this horrible grief and this horrible suffering. And Rainier says, you know, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I'm sorry you have to go through this. And Damon says, you know, well, at least, at least I can mourn her, you know. And I think that this was sweet. This was a moment of them really bonding and really reconnecting and it proves just how much I feel like they understand each other and I think that's the reason Rhaenyra feels so much solace with Damon especially in this moment you know they're both grieving they're both very hurt and they both feel very alone and I think they they find each other in this way and it makes it a very a very powerful very fiery union reunion between them so it's beautiful to think that they don't feel quite so alone anymore when they're together, when they're together again. Um, I think my only critique really, well, just like many others have said, I really was not pleased with how dark the scene was. Uh, from what I understand, there was a tweet sent out by HBO Max where they explained that this was an artistic choice, having the scenes be so dark. But it was a shame because I feel like I couldn't appreciate the nuance of the actors' expressions and of their performances. I feel like I couldn't really fully appreciate this scene between Rainier and Damon until I saw fans re-uploading the scene where they had turned up the brightness a bunch. You know, there's just small nuances just in their facial expressions and the way that they look at each other that I feel like I really just could not see in the scene. Even I had the brightness like on my computer turned all the way up and I could hardly see them except for their, you know, their shining silvery blonde Targaryen hair, um, which was one of the few things I could see in the moonlight. Um, so that was a shame, you know, I understand if you're trying to set a certain mood by having it so dark, if you're trying to have it be very moody or broody or, you know, very mournful, but it's it's a shame that I feel like we couldn't have these actors' performances fully appreciated if we can't see them. So I, I would say that was my one critique, and I wonder if that was one reason I didn't feel the full impact of this scene until I rewatched it, or until especially I rewatched it with the fan edits turning up the brightness. So I also feel like I, I felt a bit of the disorientation that people have felt from the time skip. You know, I've heard critiques from fans about the time skip since the beginning of the show. Since the beginning of the show, I've heard people talk about how the time skips are really disorienting. And I didn't really feel that at first, early on, you know, when the time skips were just a year or two at a time and weren't so big. And when it was a bit easier to infer what things might have happened in that time, I didn't feel as much of, a, of an issue with it. You know, like the time skip where now Allison has two-year-old Aegon and is pregnant. And I I feel like it wasn't, I feel like I didn't struggle getting on board, I guess, with, with short little time skips like that. Where it wasn't hard to see what had happened in that time. But in this major time skip, the 10-year skip between five and six, 
I think this was the first time I really felt disoriented by a time skip. And I think it, it's just a combination of how large of a jump it was. But also because of the change in actors. Granted, I think I do think the casting is incredible. I think all the, the new actors that were chosen resemble the characters physically. And they also, you know, act like and speak like and seem like the characters and have their mannerisms. Like, it's not hard for me to believe that Olivia Cook is, is old Alicent and older Alicent and Emma Darcy is older Rhaenyra. And, you know, it's not it's not the actors and it's not their performances. I think the, the casting is wonderful. I almost just wish as a viewer I had more time to adjust to them, you know, like... As as well as I think, you know, for example, of Rainier and Damon on this beach, as well as I think the actors did it portraying their reunion and the emotional significance of that for these characters and were able to portray their chemistry that still burned for each other. And I, I, I felt that and I saw that. I feel like, I almost feel like if we had more time to see, you know, older Rainier with Damon even just another episode of them perhaps speaking to each other or seeing each other, I think it would have helped me as a viewer to adjust a little bit more to it, you know? So I'm not saying I wasn't sold on it, not sold on their chemistry. The actors did an incredible job. I just almost wish I was given more time as a viewer to immerse myself in the time jump and in the new actors and get used to them. And I know I'm definitely not the first person to say that. I know other fans feel that. Um, it is interesting that yeah, now I'm feeling the the effects of the time jump a little bit. Which is a shame because I know we're about to get another time jump in episode 8. Seems like all the children of Rhaenyra and, and Alicent are going to be aged up and recasted. So we'll see if that same uh, disorientation is still there. Um, so that that's to be seen. Um, moving on to the moment when Amund tames Vagar. Um, again, I think it's a shame how dark this scene is because I couldn't fully appreciate it. Um, but just in general, I love the design of the dragons in this show. I love how Vagar looks and sounds ancient and she is she's the oldest and biggest dragon alive and that's really sold I feel like in her design even just you know her her scaly dragon skin it looks aged it looks like she's been scarred through war you know and she has these holes in her wings and the way that she like growls and roars it I can I can feel her age and the fact that she's such, you know, an ancient creature and she's seen and experienced so much. Even just her design, her appearance and her sound, I feel it conveys that. So I, I really love that. They they very effectively portrayed her as a beast and something that is not easy to reckon with, you know. And that's something I appreciate more broadly just about this show in general. It feels like every dragon really is its own character. Every dragon has its own personality, its own appearance, its own mannerisms, um, its own sound and growls and roars. Like, I, I love that so much. The dragons feel very distinct and, and fully fleshed out. And I liked that a lot because that is something about Game of Thrones 
that was more challenging that all the dragons kind of looked the same and acted the same and it wasn't very easy to distinguish between them. I found myself definitely mixing them up at times. So I really love that this show took the time to give them each distinct looks and distinct personalities. Um, the the ride itself, I love that Amond struggles to ride Vagar at first. Not only does it feel more realistic to what it would be like for a person to try and tame a huge dragon like this, um, and with the fact that he's a kid too, it, it seems realistic that he would have this struggle. Um, it was kind of a moment of levity in the episode, you know, in a very uh, after a very dark and somber, you know, scene of a funeral, seeing young Eamon just clenching for dear life onto this rain of this dragon and just screaming in terror and trying his best to stay on. I just, oh, I loved it. It was, it was hilarious. It felt like a moment from like Harry Potter or something is what it reminds me of, like seeing on a wizard riding on a broom for the first time or playing Quidditch or something. I don't know. It, I, I loved it. Such a moment of levity and felt very realistic. You know, if, if someone, someone tried to tame a dragon, it seems like this is what it would be like. And I loved the moment when he was able to take control of Vagar and get more comfortable on the saddle and control her with the reins. And when he had that building comfort and confidence in riding Vagar, you hear just this version of Daenerys' theme trickle in. And uh, hearing her theme, it just, it makes me tear up every time. I remember right in the opening of the first episode of House of the Dragon, when we see Rhaenys on Cyrax, you hear this version of Daenerys' theme just trickling in the air and it, it, it brought a tear to my eye, you know? It reminds me of the first time we see Daenerys ride her dragons and how it's just such a moment of of power and, and victory. And it's it's very emotionally impactful for me every time. It, it was very beautiful, very clever use of her theme. Oh, and that moment we saw Vagar just with her wings spread out under the moon, just oh, chef's kiss, beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry if I sound a little raspy. I'm trying to... Oh, all right. So moving on now to the fateful scene, the fateful climactic scene. Um, this, yeah, just like I said in the beginning, this is the moment the first blood is spilled in the Dance of the Dragons. And it's just, just an incredible scene. This really felt like the fateful moment when all of the building tensions finally, finally came to a head. You know, just like Emma Darcy said in the Inside the Episode, um, this felt like the moment that the greens and the blacks were solidified in a way that they hadn't been before. This feels like the moment the lines are really being drawn in the sand. You know, here's the sides these characters are on in this war, and here's why, and here's what they feel, and here's what they want. And this episode really really accomplished bringing that clarity and just being this explosion of tension it was just so so fascinating to watch um again to me kind of feeling bad for for Aegon here he was just kind of drinking himself silly at this funeral granted it seemed like he kind of was just drinking because he was bored you know he was yawning at the funeral and he was just downing cup after cup and 
you know, Otto picked him up, like, by the scruff of his neck and told him to go to bed when he was, like, <laughs> passed out drunk. Um, and then here, in in this scene, presumably he's just been woken up, just like everybody else, and he's probably, you know, kind of drunk or hungover. And here, his mother, Allison, comes over and just slaps him across the face, and he's like, what? Like, what did I do? And she's like, you weren't here to protect your, your brother, Amond, you know, you were too busy getting drunk or whatever and it's like what was poor what was poor Aegon supposed to do like he was just sleeping you know like it's so easy I guess to point fingers at your oldest son and be like you're supposed to protect your brother but like not even the Kingsguard whose job it literally is to protect them was there to protect Aemon so like you can't get mad at your son Allison like I I felt I felt kind of bad for Aegon um and just like others have said, the moment that Allison demands that the eyes of one of Rhaenyra's sons is taken as as retribution for Aemon's eye being taken, it very much had the same energy, the same vibes as when Cersei uh, made a similar demand in Game of Thrones. Um, Again, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen Game of Thrones. Please skip forward just like 30 seconds. But the moment when Cersei demands for um, Sansa's wolf to be killed after, you know, a similar kind of incident in fighting with the children happens. Um, this is just a moment where Alicent is really showing her inner Cersei. You know, she's become this very... She's she's very vengeful in this moment. She quite literally, you know, wants an eye for an eye. And it was it's very interesting to see. Kind of like Otto said, you know, I don't know if I expected to see this in Allison. You know, she definitely isn't the same kind of quiet, kind of meek, obedient girl that she used to be. She's going to show when she's angry and she's going to flex her queenly powers to do what she perceives as justice so and that that kind of brings me to the fateful moment when she grabs that dagger and tries to maim Rhaenyra or one of her sons you know it's interesting that my second time watching this episode I felt myself kind of sympathizing more with Alicent than I did originally you know because what she says when she approaches Rhaenyra and Rhaenyra says, you know, you've gone too far. Allison says, you know, what have I done other than what's expected of me? Which is which is fair, you know? And I felt some sympathy for Allison in this moment because she's someone who all she's ever done is what she's told to do. And what has it gotten her? You know, it got her son to lose an eye and it got her stuck in this marriage with this king who she, you know, doesn't love or isn't attracted to, and she's stuck as just bearing his children and is trapped in this castle and has to have his heirs and raise them despite the fact that this isn't something clearly that makes her happy. And this isn't what she wants, but she sees it as her, as her duty. You know, at first she did what her father told her to do and she was kind of a servant to him and she had to seduce the king despite what she wanted simply because it's what her father wanted and then she had to you know be there to to assist the king or beckon at his every call and it's 
it is heartbreaking to see that Allison is someone who was always, you know, obedient to the system and acted in a way that was expected of a, a noble lady. You know, she followed the rules, I guess you could say, of this society. And what did it get her? You know, it left her feeling very lonely and very isolated in this castle and trapped in this marriage and trapped with these, you know, young children when she was just like a young teen girl. And it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, and it, Allison's a perfect example of how broken the system is, you know, because even when people, you know, supposedly, you know, try to live within the system or try to do what they're told or try to, you know, build their life off of that, it doesn't, it doesn't serve them well at all. You know, look what it left with Allison, it left her alone. So I can, I can understand her frustration because maybe she thought by following the rules, she would, she would, you know, be happy, but that's not what it got her at all. Um, but the way that I see it, you know, this is a system that hurts everyone. And I think that's a big lesson I'm definitely getting from the, from the world of Song of Ice and Fire more broadly, but definitely from this show, the idea that this feudal system and this deeply misogynistic society is something that hurts everyone. You know, it hurt Allison, someone who tried to follow the rules of this society and was left alone and trapped. It, it hurt Rhaenyra. Again, just like she talked about earlier, Rhaenyra felt alone too. It robbed her of her mother. It robbed her of her best friend and, you know, the connection she had with her father before um, him and Allison got married. And it robbed Rhaenyra of the ability to, you know, marry someone who she loves. You know, most people in this society can't marry who they love. It, it robbed Laenor of the ability to to love who he loves and be with that person and be himself and express himself and be true to his sexuality without, again, going through something really drastic and faking his own death in order to find that freedom from the limitations that this society has put on him, you know? Like, this seems like a system that really, it hurts, it hurts everyone. It, the only difference is that some people choose to twist the system for their own benefit, whereas others just simply try to tolerate it. And I think that's one reason why I see Alicent as a bit of a hypocrite, because she does criticize Rhaenyra for for not, you know, submitting to duty and honor and sacrifice the same way Alicent has. Um, she seems to feel resentment for Rhaenyra in that way. And she seems to see Rhaenyra, you know, as as an entitled and spoiled, you know, royal who uses her her royal powers to get away with having bastard children and having people just, you know, not speak about it. And, you know, she's able to get away with that. And she saw Rhaenyra as, you know, having children who were able to get away with taking her son's eye. And she sees this as just Rhaenyra abusing, like, her royal power and her privilege to her own benefit. But my, my counter-argument to that would be that Alicent does the same thing, just in her own ways. Alicent uses her own royal power to her benefit as well. 
The only reason it seems like Kristen Cole is alive is because of Allison's royal power. You know, Kristen murdered someone in cold blood at the royal wedding and struck the future king consort, Lainor, in the face. Like, Kristen should have been executed, no doubt, or sent to the Night's Watch, or, you know, removed from the King's Guard, something. But he completely got away with it scot-free. And of course, we never see exactly why that is, but I, I would bet you that Alicent's royal influence probably has something to do with it. She probably pardoned him because she saw him as an ally, you know? Um, and Alicent, you know, in this scene, she, she cuts Rhaenyra, the heir to the throne. She wounds the princess. Like, if, if Alicent wasn't a royal, she would have faced very severe consequences for that. She could have even been, you know, executed. And you can say the same for most people in this story and everyone involved in this conflict, you know. Rhaenyra's sons would have been punished or even executed for taking the eye of, of Prince Aemond if they weren't royals. You know, Rhaenyra, yeah, wouldn't have been able to have these bastard children um, and get away with it for so long. You know, it seems like most of these characters, if not all of them, benefit in some way from royal privilege and use it to their own advantage. So I, I did see Alicent as a bit of a hypocrite for accusing Rhaenyra of, of benefiting from her royal privilege when so does Alicent, you know. Um, and kind of going back to the idea of everyone being a victim to this system and the ways that Alicent is a victim. You know, she feels all this resentment for Rhaenyra for, you know, getting away with having master children and getting away with the things she does just because she is a princess and the daughter of the king and the heir to the throne. And while Alicent, you know, has always been a very traditional woman in this world and followed the rules, it seems to me that Alicent shouldn't resent Rhaenyra. She should resent her father and resent the system. You know, she should resent the system that she tried so hard to, to live by for not, I guess, rewarding her for that with, you know, not feeling so alone. Um, and she should resent her father because I see her father really as at fault for, for most of this happening. I know a lot of people blame Viserys, and I definitely think he plays a part in this. You know, you could say that if Viserys married Lena, like he was supposed to, and like everyone told him he should, this probably would have never happened, a lot of this, you could argue. Um, but I see Otto really as the main cause of a lot of this. And it's because if Otto wouldn't have propped up Alicent as a, a suitor for Viserys and pushed, pushed her to, you know, seduce him and be around him, in his time of grief for his wife, you know, he, I mean, Viserys probably would have married, married Lena, you know, and Alicent is so afraid now because she's trapped in this situation where because her children are, are rightful, um, children of Viserys, whereas Rhaenyra's children are bastards and Rhaenyra is the heir to the throne, you know, just like Otto told Rhaenyra before he left King's Landing after he was fired in episode five, um, simply by your sons, you know, existing, 
they are a threat to Rhaenyra's claim, and Rhaenyra may try to kill them, he claims, in order to secure her claim to the throne. But the thing is that the only reason Alicent is in this situation in the first place is because of Otto. Otto was so ambitious from the beginning to get someone of his blood on the throne. If it wasn't for his meddling, Viserys probably would have never married Alicent. If it wasn't for his meddling and his manipulation of the king and of his daughter, she she could have married some other lord somewhere else, you know, and been far away from this all of this succession madness. She could have preserved her friendship with Rhaenyra. She could have gone off somewhere else and had children that aren't in any way related to the crown and she she would have never had children whose lives could have been threatened by by Rhaenyra or by this upcoming succession war, you know? So the only reason she's in this situation, I believe, is because of Otto. So I see him really as the, the main villain and the main orchestrator in this, and I feel like Allison should resent him for that. I feel like in a lot of ways, Otto ruined Allison's life. His own ambition for the throne forced his daughter into a situation where now she's terrified that her children are going to get murdered in this upcoming war. And now her her friendship with her former best friend, Rhaenyra, is just destroyed. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking, you know. Alicent really is a prime example of the way this system just is, is corrupt and doesn't work. Because even when people try to follow it like Alicent and try to do what they're told and they think that that's the way and that's the right thing to do, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help them. It only hurts them the same way that this system hurts everyone, the same way that this system hurts Lenor, because he can't be with who he loves without taking extreme action, the same way it hurts Rhaenyra, because she had to marry someone who she knew could never truly love her and have the kind of relationship with her that she wants. And she had to, you know, have these secret um, relationships and these bastard children, um, because that was her only way to find, you know, companionship and love. And it's it's just it's just devastating, you know, this system it robbed Lena of her life and it robbed uh, Emma of her life and it just it hurts it hurts everyone. And I think that was definitely a big takeaway that I take away from the whole series, but definitely from this episode especially by bringing all these conflicts to a head it really highlights to us just how broken and how corrupt this feudal system is, that it hurts everyone, that it was able to drive even best friends like Rhaenyra and Alicent against each other and drive them to war, which is really heartbreaking because they had such a pure and such a beautiful relationship and a beautiful friendship, and it got destroyed by this system. So in a system that makes everyone feels sad and feel lonely it seems like the only difference is you know some people are brazen enough to defy it and I think that is the thing that I really adore about Rhaenyra and is yeah a reason why I really love her you know she sees this system and she's not afraid to defy it you know she has these relationships outside of her marriage in order to find fulfillment and her and her husband have this very you know kind of progressive conversation where they agree to have this open marriage because they understand that's the only way they're going to be able to find fulfillment in 
this system that leads them sad and lonely. And I appreciate how Rhaenyra seems to be a, a figurehead and this trailblazer for this ability and this person to have the ability to defy this system. You know, she she proclaims that once she takes the crown that she'll create a new order, you know, an order where women can inherit the throne. Uh, a new order. Um, and I appreciate how Viserys seems supportive of that change as well, because when when he's having this conversation with Corlys Velaryon in episode five about the future when Rainier inherits the throne, he he proclaims that Rainier and Laenor's child, regardless of gender, the firstborn child, will inherit the throne after Rainier. So it seems like Viserys is trying to set a new precedent and is trying to change at least one part of the, the laws and the customs of this world to make it more inclusive to, to women. And I do, I do really appreciate that. It is one big, I think, redeeming quality of Viserys. Granted, he still doesn't have the most progressive views. In episode four, Damon confronts Viserys and says, you know, you and I, brother, we we worked our way through every brothel on the Street of Silk when we were Rhaenyra's age. You know, what's a, the big deal with Rhaenyra, you know, if she wanted to do the same? And Viserys says, you know, it's because we're young men. She was just a girl. And and Rhaenyra confronts him with the same thing. She says, you know, father, if I, if I was born a man... I could, you know, father as many bastards as I want and go to all these brothels and no one would blink an eye. And Viserys is like, yeah, that's true, but you're a girl, so these are the rules you have to abide by. So I'm not saying Viserys is this perfect figurehead of the possible, you know, progressive, more gender-inclusive future, um, but I do I do admire the fact that he's, he's willing to, to work to change the rules of succession at least by making Rainier his heir and proclaiming that her child, regardless of gender, uh, her oldest child will inherit the throne after her. It seems like he's trying to create a bit of a new order in that way. And I, I love Rainier for being at the center of that and the front of that and, and wanting to create that new world and being willing to defy this system that ultimately makes everyone feel unhappy and lonely and is willing to carve out her own version of happiness in it. Um, so with my love of Rhaenyra, I was so devastated for about two seconds when I truly believed that her and Damon killed Lainor. And it, I was just so heartbroken first time I was watching this when I was like watching their wedding and everything. Like I couldn't fully appreciate it, you know, as as this Daemira shipper, this was like the one thing I had been waiting for. But when I believed that the only way that it happened was by murdering Lainor, I was just crushed. So it really, it was the best moment ever when Lainor, when we saw Lainor and his shaved head getting on that boat. I, I quite literally, I paused the episode first time I was watching it and jumped up and just screamed for joy. I was like, oh my goodness, thank God they didn't kill Lainor. Because I was like, I knew I would never forgive them. I knew I would hate them forever. And I was devastated because I didn't want to hate them forever because I really do like Rhaenyra. Um, so it, I, I jumped for joy from the relief to know that they didn't actually kill Lainor. Granted, they still killed some random innocent guy, which is 
obviously very sad and devastating. But nobody in in this world and in these shows has clean hands, you know. Then that's something I really love about it. They're all very morally gray. They all are corrupt in their own ways, while at the same time, for the most part, they're all very sympathetic in their own ways as well. Um, I love how George R. R. Martin is able to craft such morally gray characters, because I think those are the most interesting and the most fascinating because they feel the most like like real people. So that is my review and breakdown of episode 7. I hope y'all enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this episode and definitely my favorite one so far. I really look forward to seeing what's next and I look forward to seeing when this war fallout begins. I know we're going to see dragons fighting dragons. It's going to be something very intense. I'm very excited to see what's to come. And I hope you all enjoyed. I hope Y'all will stick around next week for next week's review and breakdown of episode 8. You can follow me here on YouTube, on Spotify, on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the tag at The Spring Dream. And I hope to see you all next time. Thanks for stopping by.